Sometimes mistakes happen. When it comes to reviewing your contract, you would want to keep those blunders to a minimum, right? Well, my friends, after this show, you're almost going to feel like a pro when it comes to checking out your contracts. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. I am so glad you made it. Because every time you're here, hopefully you're learning something new that you can take with you and teach one of your colleagues about, or at least that's what I'm hoping you'll do with this show. All of you at some point have had to review your own contract, and it's not an easy thing to plow through the details, but you know, somehow you get through it, maybe missing a few things here or there. But what's super important is knowing what to look for and what to pay attention to that you may not realize that could be working against your favor the moment that you sign it. And that's why I have Kyle Clausen, president of one of the top rated physician contract review companies in the US called Resolve on the podcast with me. And he's on here to share some of the best industry knowledge you can find without having to go talk to an attorney. Plus, he's one of us. He's married to a physician. I'd like to recommend, though, that by the end of the show, if you still feel a little confused, reach out to Kyle directly. You can go to financialresidency.com slash resolve and be able to reach out to him because this stuff is super important. You're likely negotiating millions of dollars in a contract. If you were to stay there, let's say 20 years and you're negotiating a $250,000 salary, that's some big money. So make sure you're reaching out to a professional that does this all day, every day. All right. So now that I let you in on that little tidbit, let's get on with the show. Kyle, really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. This is going to be super fun. Even though we're talking about contracts and that might not necessarily be the most exciting or sexiest topic for some people, but we get questions like this stuff all the time. And so I'm really excited to have you here. So we can just kind of go over a few things. And I think the easiest way to start out would be, let's talk on like the common issues that you guys see with physician contracts that are more landmines or problem areas in typical contracts. Sure. We see a high volume of these things. And so there's really no standard as far as what a physician contract looks like. You know, they can range anywhere from two or three pages to 50 pages. But in all of those, the main issues and the common traps, uh, if you want to call them that, fall into three main buckets. And the first bucket really revolves around day in and day out things that tend to not get clarified uh, in the document. And what I mean by that is things like scheduling, You know what your call schedule is going to look like, uh, what the locations of service are going to look like, uh, if you're doing any type of shift work, if it's day shifts, night shifts, uh, you know, things of that nature can tend to be overly broad. And a lot of our clients have received verbal assurances and promises on what that is supposed to look like, but it doesn't make its way to the document. And that can cause issues, you know, down the road when suddenly there's a new administrator in that thinks you're here to take call every other night when they told you uh, a year before that you were only going to take it every, every four, things of that nature. 
So that, that would be one high level bucket. The second bucket, you know, really is around compensation and making sure those structures are, are set up appropriately and fairly. And there's a lot that goes into compensation and benefits. So it's not only just base salaries and guarantees, but it's also production models and the thresholds that go along with those to bonus. We're starting to see some things in quality, you know, as well, patient satisfaction, where they're tying a certain portion of the compensation to that. And then the, the third main area would be anything that revolves around termination, right? So we know that almost every physician will move around two or three times throughout their career. And so termination is an event that's going to happen, uh, even if we hope it doesn't. And so are there non-competes involved or other restrictive covenants like non-solicitations? Are there tail coverage issues on your malpractice? Are there any repayments uh, of whether that's you know student loan reimbursements that you've received or signing bonuses that you've received? Uh, there's a lot of traps that go into how long you're committed to a practice before those types of things uh, are forgiven entirely. And so not to oversimplify it, but across all contracts, those three main areas are really where you should should draw most of your attention to. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And and I've just seen it with clients where a lot of those uh, either student loan repayments or bonuses have some, you know, two, three year, sometimes even five year vesting, if you will. And mm-hmm. if they're looking to leave, then they've got to pay it back. And then there's issues with tax problems because they've recorded his income. And then you're looking at a whole big giant ball of mess. And I know it's definitely frustrating for clients. And I can imagine everyone listening would be quite frustrated. What do you guys typically see or recommend in that setting? Is it better to try to get that instead of a bonus? Are you trying to make it so it doesn't invest immediately? Or how do you guys kind of help people out with that? Yeah, the sooner the better, obviously, on all of that. So you you want to shorten that vesting schedule. Uh, if you can, you'd like it to be prorated, you know, by the month rather than you know, 12 months at a time, you know, if it's a two-year commitment, you'd like them to forgive it in one twenty-fourth fractions rather than half at one year and half at two years. The, the tax issue is interesting because income tax says that you're not supposed to be, you know, paying tax on that until it's forgiven, right? So if they're withholding those amounts up front and they paid income tax on it already and they leave early, there is a problem of not having the cash to actually turn around and pay back to the organization, right? And Mm -hmm. then potentially an amended tax return that needs to get filed to correct that. So, you know, the cleaner you can make that in the document, the quicker you can get that repaid or forgiven, um, obviously the better. And that's certainly one area that a lot of our clients have interest in. Yeah. We've had two of those this year in 2019, into 18 Mm -hmm. and early 19. So it's definitely frustrating. Just one of those things that it, immediately when I think of that, it, it comes to mind is those two issues. But uh, mm-hmm. let's talk at non-competes. So there's a lot of buzz around this. We get asked a lot in the Facebook group. I get emailed all the time uh, asking some some of these complex questions. And, you know, let's start high level on the non-compete and let everyone make sure everyone knows like what we're talking about. And then sure. let's kind of dig deeper and start asking some of the complex questions with it. Yeah. So a, a non-compete at a high level is essentially a promise between the physician and the group that if the contract ends and terminates, the physician promises not to practice medicine within a certain area surrounding that employer. And they fall not only into physician contracts, but into other employment contracts as well. And they're designed to protect the employer from bringing on a new employee, having them you know, learn all the trade secrets, be in touch with all their clientele, patients, you know, in this situation, 
And then to have that employee or physician walk across the street and steal all of that business. And so that's the reason why courts and states allow for non-competes at a high level. The question is, is in healthcare specifically, are those policy features and are those policy reasons why we allow them still applicable? And most courts in most states will analyze those on a case-by-case basis for reasonableness. And what they look at is the time period, meaning how long are you restricted from practicing? They'll look at the radius or the geography that they're trying to keep you out of to make sure that that's reasonable. And they'll also look at the scope of what they're preventing you from doing. So uh, in the example of a hospitalist, for example, you know, can they go and, and work in an outpatient setting or is it just purely inpatient stuff that's being prevented? That's really what a non-compete is. Now, there are certain states and California, you know, being the biggest of them that by statute have said, we don't think that that's appropriate for physicians and they don't allow them. But almost all states do allow them. It's just a matter of whether or not they're reasonable. And so it's a it's a major issue uh, that all physicians should be paying attention to in their contracts. Absolutely. And what do we deem reasonable in terms of length? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a loaded question for you. Yeah. Yeah. What's reasonable to you? We see most frequently between six months and three years. That's kind of the window for for time. Almost all of them somewhere between one and two years. You know, some of that is going to depend on the area, right? But and, and maybe specialty and type of you know practice that they're in. But almost always between one and two years is what we see. Yeah, and I've got a specific example. I, I'm curious on now actually is where one of our, it was actually a client, they were working for a hospital and the hospital had a non-compete within a 60 mile radius of where they were. And that seemed quite ridiculous considering that their bonus structure was tied to them working at that hospital or any like surrounding hospital within that area. And so if they went to leave, they would have had to not only pay back this humongous bonus that was stretched over three years, but then they also like couldn't practice within 60 miles. This is actually in Orange County, which then oh, hits okay. LA and San Diego. So they literally couldn't practice in like all of Southern California pretty much. And that didn't seem reasonable to me, but yeah. of course I'm yeah. not an attorney and I think non-competes so, are ridiculous anyway. So I guess I'm not looking at the, the reasonableness statute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what the reasonableness factor in geography specifically means and on the radius is they're going to look at the potential draw area of the practice and where they're they're picking up patients from, usually in places like New York City and Orange County, like you just referenced. These are really small because it's they're very highly populated areas. 60 miles would be extremely unreasonable in my opinion, but usually we see those at two to five miles, right? Something yeah, very tight, single single uh, digits. Would make yeah. total sense. Yeah. And if you're in the middle of, not to pick on Iowa, but if you're in the middle of Iowa, right, 60 miles may actually be the draw area for a practice. And that that might be the next competitor down the road. So there's no standard um, on that. But again, you take a look at the population, the density, and you start at a mile or two and you go all the way up to 60, depending if it's a, it's a rural area. Yeah. I pick on Kansas on the show just because my wife's okay. from there. So it makes it easy. Kansas, so future reference, just crush Kansas Anyone listening from Kansas is probably going to kill me, but it's all good. So, you know, how important is this? Because I, I think it's really important, but I would like another perspective on this and, and at least let everyone listening have another perspective. How important is it in signing something to understand, truly understand the non-compete? And then is there any wiggle room in 
negotiation with these usually? There is, in our experience, wiggle room. And there's carve-outs, right? Even if the general rules on these things are two years and 10 miles, let's say, there's still questions on, well, what if the employer is the one that terminates me? What if I'm not the one walking away? Or what if the contract expires? Or you know, what if I'm not offered partnership if I'm in a private practice setting? Am I still then prevented from working in this area? So you've got to do your best to carve out all of those situations. The biggest concern that I have on them is it, it removes leverage from the physician's next step, right? So if for some reason it's just not a good fit and you need to move on or you want to renegotiate compensation down the road, if you don't have a walk away, if you can't go to the nearest competitor, you're really pigeonholing yourself uh, into a situation that that may not be the best fit. So I, I think they're extremely important. I think they're probably one of the top three things in a contract that you need to pay attention to if you don't look at anything else you know, look at the non-compete for sure and make sure you understand what you're getting into. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And as you said, this was one of those, one of the other ones you said was kind of how it breaks out your actual work schedule, call schedule, those kind of things. And mm-hmm. I've heard the verbal a billion times. Oh, they promised this and they promised that. Well, it doesn't say anything like that in the contract. And how much do you guys push your clientele to get that in their contract? And how successful are they at actually getting that in the contracts? First of all, I want to touch on the successfulness rate. Every single employer will tell you that the contracts are standard. They're non-negotiable. It's what everybody's signed. You've probably heard that line too. Of course, a thousand times. I think the thing that you have to have, and we can touch on this later too, but you've got to have multiple offers to make sure you have that leverage and that you're willing to ask these questions. But back to the schedule, we see changes of that fairly frequently. And whether that's defining Monday through Friday, eight to five, you know, that type of thing, or, or whether it's just saying we're going to mutually agree and you can't you know, I'll agree to work an average of 40 hours, but then we'll mutually agree to set the schedule. I think small changes like that can have a huge effect in the documents and in the contracts because it gives you flexibility and it prevents them from just dictating to you when you're going to practice. And the other thing that falls into this area, especially with all of the consolidation that we've seen over the last five years and health systems growing bigger and bigger, is that there's multiple locations, right, within all these systems. And so, if you don't have a clear definition of where you're working, you could end up satelliting or seeing another facility, you know, two days a week, that might be a 60 minute drive from where you decided to buy a house. So not having that structure built into the day in and day out is what I'll call it, uh, can really be detrimental. And what if they don't know if there's satellite places that could actually happen is in, and they don't know to try to put that in is you just tell them, Hey, research this before you do it or well, I think you just need to make sure that that the contract language provides that they get to choose their location. You know, they may list by address, this is where I'm going to practice. But then if we want to change that in the future, you know, again, I've got to consent to it as the physician. You can't just decide to open up a new clinic, right, in my second year and then tell me that that's where I'm going to be Wednesday through Friday, it, especially in health systems because they're constantly expanding. Uh, there's constantly a new administrator you know, coming through uh, the system as well that doesn't understand what you agreed to previously. So definitionally, you can change that in the contract to make sure you're protected. Yeah. And I'm going to ask kind of a potentially loaded question here now. And we've been talking a lot through like health systems and private practice, you know, things like that. What about with the government? Like if you are working for the VA or yeah, let's stick with Mm -hmm. the VA. Like, is there any negotiating on those contracts? They tend to have more standardized contracts, you know, with the government, we'll still see movement on compensation and things of, of that nature. But most of those things are are set now. It's all still 
need based, right? And so you can always amend a contract, but the the boilerplate kind of general templates, they like to keep those fairly standard. Yeah. And I'm I'm just thinking of Taylor's, like when we actually received theirs, like it didn't even look like a formal contract. It was almost mm-hmm. a joke. And mm-hmm. there was no wiggle room on anything other than, you know, if we wanted to come back on some type of compensation to peace. But there was literally, I mean, it was I was kind of embarrassed for the government for sending what they sent, but (laughs) let's switch over to some of the trends that you guys are seeing now. What trends are you guys seeing with like bonus pay or severances or tail coverages? Like what, what do you guys kind of see as trends in in the marketplace right now? Sure. From a talking about compensation, we see work RVUs as a production model being adopted a, a little more frequently than the collection model that historically had been there or a gross charges or a billing type model. And I think that's for clarity. And I think that's a little bit because from a physician standpoint, I think they prefer that sometimes too, because they don't have to worry about what payer mix they're seeing, right? If you're not in private practice and you're not worried about the cash necessarily coming in the door because you've got a billing department to do that, work RVUs are very common. The other thing that we're seeing is supply and demand for physicians is still extremely weighted to the physician side, right? And so incentives residency stipends, signing bonuses are becoming more common. And I think that's great you know, for your listeners. Uh, it just means that they have leverage and they should be pushing on those areas to increase those numbers as much as they can. What are your thoughts with the residency stipends? Like I, I've seen quite a few of those recently, enough that I was like, this is a trend to me, which is what mm-hmm. sparked this question. So I'm happy you hit it. Like, are you guys seeing a lot of that though? Yeah, I mean, it's increasing. I don't have a percentage for you on the number that's that all I them, but I think if you know where you want to be and you've got an employer that's offering you fair contractual terms to get paid early while you're in training to potentially, you know, pay down student loans or invest or put a down payment on a house, I think they're great. But again, they they have strings attached to them. It's just like any other signing bonus that you're getting early. Mm-hmm. And so it can work out really well. Uh, I think we've also seen them be a little bit of trouble for some of our clients, you know, down the road. And so making sure those are understood is, is key. How are they trouble? Well, it's no different than taking a signing bonus and then deciding that this was a mistake and you want to live in a different town or you want to work for a different employer. Yep. Um, the earlier you're taking that money, the longer those strings are usually and the repayments and tax returns and all that gets convoluted. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I was curious if there was something else I maybe was was missing on that. So do you guys have any tips for, you know, physicians listening that are trying to negotiate their contract? And I know there's going to be some differences between negotiating a contract that's up for renewal versus negotiating a contract that's a new job. So maybe touch on both of those as you're kind of answering that. Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's start with the, the new position or, you know, relocation entirely. Okay. The most successful clients that we have in getting changes are ones that have multiple offers and that haven't committed, you know, verbally through the interview process to taking the contract whenever it comes to them. That's a major problem. Uh, And I think people give up on their option B and option C far too quickly and they fall in love with the place before they see what the contractual terms look like. And that's human nature. So it's not anybody's Mm -hmm. fault necessarily, but I think if you're aware of that going into it, uh, you'll have a better outcome on the contract. The other thing is letters of intent, and I'm not sure how frequently you guys see those, but sometimes letters of intent are legally binding and clients don't realize that. And so they'll sign off on one or two or three letters of intent to think that they're moving forward to the contract on all three. And then lo and behold, one of them thinks that that was the contract, you know, the employer does. 
And so then you've got a potential termination issue along with signing a new contract. So trying to be patient through that process, trying to evaluate everything side by side, taking your time, reviewing and discussing with your advisors and consultants and attorneys. um, I think all of that really increases your chances of getting the terms that you want in that negotiation process. Now, if you're in a location and you're just renewing a contract, it changes the dynamic and it could be good and it could be, you know, not as good depending on how your experience has been there. You know, let's say in the past two years, if that's how long you've been working. The one nice thing is that you'll have data. You'll know exactly what your production numbers are. You'll know exactly if you've made them money or if, you know, if not, uh, if you're still costing them money. You'll know internally the politics on if they're trying to recruit, how long it's taken them to recruit, you know, what that micro supply and demand looks like. And you'll know how much, it, you know, your referral bases and your patient, you know, kind of load has increased since you've been there. So I think you're going to lean more on data, you know, personal data in any type of renegotiation. Whereas when it's the first job you're looking at, you're going to rely on third parties, national compensation surveys and, and things of that nature to, to really negotiate and push numbers. Yeah. And you mentioned letters of intent. I've never heard of actually a uh, hospital thinking like, oh, I'm going to give you a letter of intent. And then, oh, by the way, that's your contract. Is that normal? Is that typical? Or is that kind of atypical, but happens? It's atypical, but it does happen. And you know this from the government contract that you referenced prior to, and university contracts are also notorious for being very short and they don't necessarily look like contracts. They look like a letter Mm -hmm. that comes out. For the most part, they're legally non-binding. However, there's some human psychology that goes into this as well, where if you signed off on a document, even if it's non-binding and it said, here's your terms X, Y, Z, and now you want to change X and Y, we find that it's very difficult to get the employers to move on those items because they just feel like the deal was already agreed to. And that can cause difficulty through the rest of the negotiation on terms that weren't included on the LOI because the relationship has been damaged you know, to some level uh, already. Yeah. And there's anchoring, right? They're going to give you the first pieces and they might give it super low. So then if you did come back with one, you're maybe not going to go up as high, maybe in compensation or, or whatever. You mentioned some compensation data that's out there. What do you guys use? I'm assuming you guys have enough data points internally that you've got some good data, but also like, what are maybe some external data that people could use to look and make sure that they're actually getting paid fairly? Absolutely. Yeah, we do have our own internal data. We also utilize um, MGMA, which is a large compensation survey. There's Sullivan and Cotter has one. Um, AMGA has one. Some of them will use blended rates. You know, we're seeing employers kind of averaging two or three of those together. Doximity, you know, I think has a self-reported survey. Most of the recruiting firms out there will publish, you know, and post, you know, things around compensation. They may not be as detailed as MGMA is. We see most employers referencing MGMA at some level, whether that's from a compliance standpoint on fair market value, you know, not wanting to exceed a certain percentile and or just purely referencing it for base and and production numbers. So I think that's a really good reference point. I also think if you can have some local knowledge, you know, whether that's internal data like we have or information from a colleague in the area, that's really beneficial. You know, we've had situations where, you know, we've gone back to the same employer for the same specialty and they'll take the position that, you know, maybe they can only pay $50 per work RVU, for example, but we have a contract in our system that has one at 55. And so that type of thing is, is really helpful aside from any type of MGMA data or anything else that's out there. 
Yeah, you do enough of these, you're going to have your own data points and it makes a lot of sense. It's something that we actually have internally with Physician Well Services. We work with enough physicians all across the country that we see budgeting data from everyone. It's not compensation data and structure. Um, even though we have it, we don't utilize it in that that way. And we definitely don't have the volume like you guys. But budgeting data is actually really helpful. How are you spending across the categories? And then how are you spending according to your peers? And it's fascinating to see how other physician families spend and location and, and all that kind of fun stuff. So sure. It, that isn't everything now. Uh, you can so get super nerdy with it. I know. And some people are yeah. just thinking like, as soon as you say data, they're like, Oh God, it, like a spreadsheet. No, please don't <laughs> mention a spreadsheet. Yeah. It's powerful. You it, use it, it really is. It really yeah. is. But I mean, yes, I'll have to kind of nerd out on it too, but I got one more loaded question for you before we end here. And this sure. one, I don't know how well you're going to be able to answer this one, but Obviously, there's there's a lot of discussion out there about female physicians that potentially or do earn less than their male counterparts. And if, let's say, a female physician listening decides to do some digging, finds out that she's being compensated less than a male counterpart, do you have any tips or tricks or any way that she can approach her employer, whether it's at renewal time or prior to that, to maybe fight to get actually just paid what she's worth and to be paid what her peers are also being paid. Yeah, that's, it's a major problem. My wife is a physician. So I empathize with anybody that's underpaid, but especially physicians, you know, that are female that maybe haven't pushed on that item in the past. First off on the, when can you renegotiate portion of that? As long as you've got some type of termination without cause mechanism in your contract, don't feel like you need to wait until the end of the three-year term to renegotiate. Because I, I promise you, if budgets change with the institution, they're going to come back to you and renegotiate early. And so if you find out that you're underpaid, don't worry about the timing on it. You've got to you know, collect your data, collect your points that you want to make uh, and push that forward as soon as possible. Because waiting 12 months to ask for an increase um, if you're underpaid, I mean, this is more your side of it, Ryan, but I mean, the value of time, right? With money and investing and things like that is just, it's huge. And so as sooner the better is my position on that. Mm -hmm. We've had clients recently, and this goes back to the residency stipend position as well, that signed early and signed for what they thought was a large amount of money because in training, they're not paid a lot. And so, you know, taking, for example, 300,000 seemed like the right thing to do until you get out into practice and you realize that the median for your specialty is 400 and you're leaving $100,000 on the table every year. So I think it's data. Um, I think you have to get the self-doubt out of the way. And I think some of our female clients tend to have more of that than our male counterpart clients do. But knowing that they're doing the same procedures, they're seeing the same patients, the collections coming in from their services are the exact same. That's what you need to focus on. You need to focus on asking, making the request. And if you can do that, we see most systems respond accordingly. Everybody's aware of the underpayment issues. And I think the more assertive you can be and the more you can back that up with data, the better outcomes you're going to find, you know, in your contract. Yeah. And you know, obviously being married to a physician and most of our friends are female physicians and then working with, you know, a hundred plus clients at Physician Well Services, many of them who are female physicians, it still blows my mind that this exists. It's really unfortunate that it exists, but I think that was an excellent answer and excellent feedback. So I appreciate that. Kyle, as we, as we round it out here, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and also where they can find you. And then for anyone you know listening, he's going to be in our Facebook groups. You can tag him. 
with your questions. It's been a pleasure to, to have you on. So let, let's hear where you're at, what you're doing, and how people can get a hold of you. Sure. So Resolve is a company that's all about empowering physicians. I hope that's kind of been clear on what we're talking about here, but we feel like the contract itself is such an important piece. You know, finding a position is absolutely important. Getting those options is important, but locking in your income and locking in your employment terms for a physician is, is really crucial. And so we want to be advocates. We want to be that data source to help, you know, with those negotiations and making sure that our clients are confident through that process, that they can have someone with them that's seen thousands of these. Uh, we've been in business since 2009. And so there's not really a situation I don't think that we haven't come across at this point. So, you know, our, our confidence is good uh, on the information that we're delivering. And if they have any questions on pricing, we get that a lot. You know, how much does it cost to have somebody help me with my contract and to have a, an attorney help negotiate that? All of our stuff is flat feed. It's all on the website. Uh, you can go to resolve.net and take a look at that and or get into that Facebook group. And I'm happy to answer, you know, any one-off questions uh, if we can uh, without seeing a document. Yeah. Sam, that's uh, financialresidency.com slash community. If you guys would like to join, if you haven't been on yet, if you haven't subscribed to the email list, please do so. Financialresidency.com slash subscribe. Kyle, it's awesome to have you here. It was a wealth of knowledge. And I think this was one of my favorite conversations, even though we were talking about contracts, no offense, but they're not always the most fun. None taken. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. In our journal club, we're going to be discussing a post that was on the site Physician on Fire titled Geographic Arbitrage, how geo-arbitrage makes the Great Plains great. So I've had Physician on Fire on the show twice now, and one of those shows we talked actually quite a bit about geographic arbitrage. Funny enough, it's a word that Taylor actually hates, but it was such a good article, I want to make sure that we highlight it and give it some time here on the show. So in it, Physician on Fire dives into the more common situations for physicians, which you might have learned about recently, or maybe you're just in the process of learning. And this article not only gives you a quick rundown of what geographic arbitrage is, but Physician on Fire also shares some information about salary differentials and expectations of salary in certain parts of the U.S. He shares how some physicians gravitate more towards living in bigger cities but here's how that might not be the best economic decision. And I quote, those of us practicing medicine are subject to a fairly unique pay structure. We're needed everywhere, not just at corporate headquarters. Supply and demand goes a long way in determining our salaries. He goes on to say, apparently many of us prefer to live in larger cities, which creates a larger physician supply and lower demand for our services ultimately driving down the salary potential. In which case, for those of you who prefer to live in more rural areas, it might just be the best decision you could make financially. Although Physician on Fire states, fortunately, some physicians would rather be surrounded by farmland and feedlots rather than freeways. For this, they are rewarded handsomely. What I really like about this article is Physician on Fire always does a great job but interestingly, he shares a few calculations of his own when comparing specialties to locations. What he found was that for specialties such as, let's say, anesthesia, family medicine, general surgery, you might find a few of those specialties or practices will have you earning a bit more in middle America. 
Physician on Fire discusses the benefits of geographic arbitrage, but also some of the reasons that it might not meet your expectations, which is really important, for a high quality of life. So with a couple of examples being proximity to family and a lack of, let's say, access to entertainment or restaurants or culture, he brought up some good points. And in my experience, I see and talk about geographic arbitrage a lot when we're in discussion about making financial moves, literally, to help you achieve your money goals. So if you move to an area where not many of you are around that specialize in your field, you might just be in the perfect place to save some money, earn a higher salary, even despite some of its drawbacks. Thanks, Physician on Fire, for the article. I love the read, and I encourage you guys all to check it out on his site, physicianonfire.com. Many thanks for Kyle for being on the show. Many thanks to Kyle for being on the show. I hope you all enjoyed it along with our journal club. So here are the four takeaways I'd like you to walk away with. First, don't take verbal promises or make commitments outside of your contract. If it's not there upon signing, assume that it won't be a valid agreement. Kyle explained why. A lot of our clients have received verbal assurances and promises on what that is supposed to look like, but it doesn't make its way to the document. And that can cause issues down the road when suddenly there's a new administrator in that thinks, You're here to take call every other night when they told you uh, a year before that you were only going to take it every four, uh, things of that nature. Two, you need to shorten the vesting schedule if you can because of taxes and other issues. Let's say leaving before the contract is up, which is what I see quite a bit. There is a problem of not having the cash to actually turn around and pay back to the organization, right? And potentially an amended tax return that needs to get filed to correct that. So you know, the cleaner you can make that in the document, the quicker you can get that repaid or forgiven, um, obviously the better. And that's certainly one area that a lot of our clients have interest in. Third, we talked about geography and how it affects your ability to work based on your non-competes and bonus structures. You should be mindful of potential oversights brought about by those, especially if they're indicated you couldn't practice within a 60 mile radius. They're going to look at the potential draw area of the practice and where they're they're picking up patients from usually in places like New York City and Orange County these are really small because it's they're very highly populated areas 60 miles would be extremely unreasonable in my opinion but usually we see those at 2 to 5 miles and last our fourth one for residency stipends Kyle sees a lot of that with his work with his clients but beware then this is what Kyle had to say about it. It's no different than taking a signing bonus and then deciding that this was a mistake and you want to live in a different town or you want to work for a different employer. The earlier taking that money, the longer those strings are usually, and the repayment and tax returns and all that gets convoluted. One of my favorite parts in the show, our community update. Again, want to let everyone know that July 14th from 5 to 6.30, we will be doing our first community meetup. And it would be great if you all could join me. We've had some people to reach out and say that they'll be there. And some say that they couldn't make it. So, hey, I don't care if I'm the only one there. I just want to throw out the invite, make sure everyone knows it's there. And hopefully we can have a chat, maybe even give away some podcast swag at the same time. So come if you can, or let's say next time if you can't. Either way, it's going to be fun. 
Also, if you haven't picked up Cameron Huddleston's book, Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, that released last month, you really should. And I'm not just saying that because there's a dedicated chapter of, of mine in her book with conversations with my parents. I am saying that because it is a really great book and it's a great start to thinking about how to handle one of the hardest conversations you're going to probably have in your adulthood. So don't miss out. Check it out on Amazon. You guys are going to love it. I know it. This podcast is like a marriage. You get out of it what you put in. So if you show up and put in the time to learn about the financial topics most affecting you, you're more likely to grow into your financial prowess. But here's the thing. What you hear in this show is to be taken generically. It's a blanket adaptation of different financial topics affecting physician families. I can't guarantee any specific advice because I really don't know who you are and what challenges you're currently facing. I'd recommend consulting an attorney, a CPA, or reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner, to help you with those questions. Next week, we're going to have a really great show planned with special guest Jan Miller, who is a student loan expert, and we go into a bunch of common mistakes that we see physicians making when it comes to their student debts. It's loaded with a ton of great info, and I know you guys will learn something from it. So have a great week and see you guys on Friday. Cheers. Cheers.